We want to welcome you to Couples Chapel today. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. That's Brendan clapping. Yeah. <laughs> That's because without us being a couple. <laughs> Before we get started today, we just want to acknowledge where we are as a community that is hurting today. And um, I just wanted to share just from my own experience at ENC as a music major uh, who studied under the direction of Tim Shetler, as um, someone who performed in one musical uh, on the set that Mike Ballard created, um, the passion that we all bring to the conversation that's going on right now on campus springs out of the deep love that we all have for this place. And we share our passion together because we love ENC and we want the best for ENC. Okay? And we're hurting, we're all hurting, but we're all on the same team. We're all working towards the same goal. We hear you. Let's open our ears to hear, hear everyone. Our collective conversation is better than just one of our voices being heard. They had brought me to a bridge in the middle of the Golden Triangle, somewhere between Myanmar and Thailand and China. And uh, it was a place where lots of things were traded. Some, many illegal things were traded. There was a lot of drugs that crossed the borders in that area with Laos and other places. But we were there that day for a particular reason, because they were trading children on this bridge. There were men who would go into the villages in Myanmar and up into China and promise people who were in absolute poverty that if they would allow them to take their daughters with them, that they would give them a life of employment and opportunity, that they would be working in hotels as maids and cooks and servers. And it sounded like a better opportunity than what was before them there. And they would even pay the parents some money. What was a child worth that they were trading on this bridge? Uh, maybe about $150. And from there, these men would take them into places, into brothels, and enslave them in a life of prostitution. And we were there talking about a ministry that was grabbing these girls off of the bridge when they were caught and giving the, getting them to a safe place, pulling girls out of the brothels and taking them to a place where they would last and survive and thrive. But we live in a very broken world. In 2012, 20% of the population of the world, 1.4 billion people, lived on $1 a day. Another 20% of the population, another 1.4 billion people, lived on $2 a day. 40% of our world's population lived on $2 or less every day. In that same year, 20% of us lived on more than $70 a day. 
And then for the 40% there, we lived on somewhere in between $2 and $70 a day. Additionally, and I think even more disturbing, is that if we gathered the wealthiest people in the world, the 447 most wealthy people in the world, if we gathered them in this room, their combined wealth together would total more than 50% of the world's population's wealth combined together. Let me say that again. 447 individual people's combined wealth was more than the wealth of 50% of the world's population. David Livermore is a missiologist, and he shares in his book, Serving with Eyes Wide Open, some of these statistics, that we walk into a broken world not with our eyes shut, but with our eyes wide open to the world that we live in. He shares the story of Ravi, a young boy he met on the streets of Delhi, India, who was working 10 to 12 hours a day, paying off a loan of $35 that his parents had taken to pay for his sister's wedding. His work, seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day, was bonded labor for four years for a loan of $35, more than what we spent on our dinner out last night. Poverty, the disparity of wealth, in our world, reveals to us the brokenness that exists in our world. For more than 100 years, there had been a severe, acute uh, situation where racism occurred in Rwanda. There were two tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis, that had, for most of their lives, been told that the other tribe was the enemy. They were often in a situation where uh, at one point the Tutsis were in charge and they would oppress the Hutus. At another point, the Hutus were in charge and they would oppress the Tutsis. And each generation of leadership in that country pitted themselves against each other even more, so much so that in the mid-90s, when the Hutus were in charge, they would even teach in the schools that in math, if I have five Tootsies, and I kill two Tootsies. How many Tootsies do I have left? Can you imagine instilling this hatred into your children? And it all boiled over in the mid-90s in a genocide that was the largest genocide since World War II. And almost a million people lost their lives in the violence. And we know that racism finds its place all throughout the world all throughout the Middle East, and we could name places where it's boiled over in Kosovo and Syria and even home here in the United States. Unaccompanied minors and refugees in 2014 created the world's largest immigration crisis. One of the most memorable images of that moment and most disturbing was of a three-year-old boy named Ailan a boy whose body was washed up on the shores of Turkey. I don't know if we're able to bring up that image or not. Ilan's father had spent $5,000 to reserve a space on a raft for his family of four to make a 13-mile overseas journey to flee war, to flee persecution, um, 
In the middle of that 13-mile passage by sea, that raft overturned, and Ilan and his brother and his mother were killed. And while we all might not agree on the appropriate response to the refugee and immigration crisis in our world, there has to be a better solution than this. I think what troubles me the most is that we have listened to these stories of brokenness and we could share more, right? There's so many more stories of brokenness in our world. The environment is broken. Um, slavery has brought brokenness and on and on. The list goes on. What troubles me the most is that we have listened to this narrative of our culture, our American culture, actually not just listen, we've actually become drunk on this message. We have ingested it and become numb to it. The narrative that says we do not need to find ourselves there, that that is not our story, that is not my story, that is not my narrative, that is not my community, that is not my life, that that brokenness belongs to someone else. We have stopped because we are drunk on this narrative. We are numb. We have stopped asking the question, why are things the way they are in the world? We have stopped asking the question, could we imagine an alternative to all of the brokenness we see? Listen to the words of Isaiah as he provides an image of God's work in the world. Isaiah 40, verses 4 to 5. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all of the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. And so all of the brokenness of the world that we see, these statistics, these images, the places that are right outside of our door and around the world, as we see that brokenness, we know that God has an alternative preference to what that looks like. And here is an interesting news for us as we're preparing for life here at Eastern Nazarene College that God asks us to join in that work, which becomes our privilege, our mission, and our destiny. One of the characteristics of the kingdom of God is revealing brokenness to us. He allows us to join in that journey, and sometimes, even as God is revealing himself to us in the world, we find that that brokenness is about us. In 2004, our family lived in Manila in the Philippines, and we were returning to the States, and upon our return, we, we lived actually down the street in Manila uh, to a carpentry training school that trained uh, Filipinos on how to make quality furniture. And so we had sold uh, almost all of our furniture when we, when we went to Manila, so we knew we were returning and we needed some furniture. And so we went to the, the carpentry training school that was run by a Swiss carpenter. And, uh, and we had some pieces of furniture made there. One of the pieces we had made uh, was a big, beautiful hutch 
that was going to hold all of our dishes and linens and um, so we had that hutch made, and we, we had it shipped to the United States, and we moved into our new house in Kansas City. Um, it was a four-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath house, and it had a dining room with a bump-out for a hutch. But the problem was that the hutch that we had made was too big for the bump-out. It wouldn't fit in there, and so we... Um, we left it in our garage, we wrapped it up, and we thought, someday, uh, we're going to move into a bigger home with a bigger bump out, and we're going to have space to put our hutch there. Um, every day when we, we parked our car in the garage, we saw the hutch sitting there. It was our reminder, someday, we're going to move into a bigger home where we're going to have space for our nice big hutch. I was working in Africa in 2012. And I was in a refugee camp, a Somali refugee camp on the border between Somalia and Kenya. It was a difficult place to be, and there were many difficult things happening in Somalia, even still today, difficult things that caused people to leave that country fleeing for their lives. And the, the unstableness and the turmoil caused people to walk hundreds of miles with nothing, finding a place for rest and, and to save their life. It was a classic refugee camp. You would see kids with orange hair that's falling out and bloated stomachs uh, in really difficult circumstances. Uh, they were processing them with the United Nations as they came into the camp. And there they would stay. Uh, some people had been there for years in tents waiting for an opportunity to go back to Somalia when it was safe, but that day has not come yet. While I was there, I received a text from home. Even in the middle of nowhere in Africa, I could get texts. And the text revealed to me that my family was about to go through a period, a season of financial crisis. I won't get into the details of that, but... Uh, there was a stream of income that we were working with as a family, right? You can imagine that maybe guys that work in Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, uh, we, we don't get paid lots and lots of money, but, but we had other sources of income, and that income was going to stop. And I remember texting Lynn right away. I said, Lynn, uh, we got to talk when I get home. We're going to have to change some things about spending money. This is the text you uh, never want to send to your wife, by the way. We have to stop spending money. And we're going to have to change what our life looks like when I get back. So he returned. And I'm not a big spender. I don't know why. That's right. <laughs> when he returned, um, we actually stood there in, in the garage, I remember, and Larry was sharing with me the stories of the people that he saw who had been traveling 30 days, 45 days with their belongings on their back and entering this refugee camp. And we got this sort of sickening feeling in the pit of our stomachs when we looked at the hutch in the corner of the garage. We decided to make some changes as a family. We put the hutch on Craigslist. 
We didn't find a need anymore to move into a bigger home for a place, for our bigger hutch, where we were going to buy things to fill it with because it was empty. We didn't feel that need anymore. We sat down around the table as a family, and I remember the discussion we had. We said, let's begin to pray about selling this home and downsizing so that we have some margin in our life um, with our finances. Let's downsize and see what God would do with that decision. We began to pray. We went around the table and our kids said, well, I'm going to pray for our new house, wherever that's going to be, that smaller home that we're going to move into. And another kid would say, I'm going to pray for that neighborhood that we are going to move into, uh, that God would bless the relationships that we would have there. And as we went around the table, we just shared with our kids this deep sense um, that God was changing us as a family, um, that we were going to begin to stop listening to that narrative that tells us that broken story is not your story. We were going to stop listening to that and begin to make changes in the way that we lived because we found that we were actually the ones who were broken. We know that we are broken in our wealth as much as others are broken in their poverty. And God began to work in us, and we began to get angry. Angry. I got angry when we got home that we couldn't make even a contribution to the devastation that I just saw. And so Lynn worked. We sold the hutch that was in the garage on Craigslist, and we donated that money to the, the people in the refugee camps in Africa. And as we began to dream about downsizing our lives so that we could do something more significant, you would think 20 years working on the brokenness of the world that we would have that all figured out. But, but we didn't. In fact, here's one of the things we know, that perfection comes at death. And until we reach our place in God's kingdom on the other side, uh, he will always be working in our lives towards that perfection. This brokenness that is in us, God will always be revealing himself to us in the middle of our brokenness about what is the next thing that he wants to do in our life. What is the next thing? What is the next thing? And so we had spent our lives dealing with brokenness. This time we were dealing with our own brokenness. Uh, And we wanted to find a place as a family where we could, when we sold our house and we bought our smaller house, we were going to have a little bit of equity, and we wanted to do something special with that equity as a family. And so we dreamed about plugging into a community in Bangladesh. So um, after the sale of our home, we, we sent some of, some of our money to a community in Bangladesh that, uh, that, developed, that, that, that um, offered community development projects through the Church of the Nazarene. Um, we sent the money in April, and about a year later, they invited us to come and see um, what they were able to do with our donation. And so we took our kids and we went to Borapur, Bangladesh, the northwest corner of that country, a remote Hindu village there. And, and we saw um, 
some amazing, amazing projects there. I'll let you share about those. Well, in Bangladesh, you can imagine it's one of the poorest countries on earth. And uh, people live in very difficult poverty and difficult circumstances. And so this project had many different components. First of all, it provided clean water for the village. Uh, and so about a thousand people in the village now had access to clean water, which is a really big deal. And then it provided uh, a school education for the kids, literacy training for the children. And so they had a school where, uh, oh, what was it, about four or 500 kids would come to the school and they would be trained in all sorts of things. They also had a self-help group for women. So all of the women of the village would come together and they would be empowered to increase their circumstances. They were set up with uh, microloans. They were allowed to start their own business. This in a country where women uh, are not thought well of. Now they had some dignity. They were starting their own businesses. They started uh, pig farms. I had to laugh when I went to a couple of places. Uh, now these ladies had actually employed their husbands in their business. Imagine what that would be like in a community where women were not valued. It was a difficult place. I have to just tell a little bit more about that program with these women because it was so inspiring to me. These women, they were just voluntarily gathered and they sat around in a circle in their community and um, what they would do is they, one of them would be selected to, to hold the money. Each woman would bring the equivalent of two cents a week to bring to the community development project that they were going to be a part of. Two cents a week, every woman brought it. There were about 15 or 20 women in the group. So they would bring that as their dues. As they contributed that, they would receive um, training on how to run a business. And when they had gathered, after about three or four months, they had gathered enough money from each other. When they had gathered enough money, they decided together which woman would be the first to get that collection of money to start her business. So they decided together they would give that to her and she would either buy maybe a loom to make mats or pigs for a farm or um, some of the other women had like a little cook stove where they could create food for their village and sell it. And so as, they, as that woman began to earn money, she would repay back, she would pay back her loan. They were all still bringing two cents every week. They gave the next loan to the second woman, the third, and over the course of three to five years, every woman in the circle had received the loan, had started a small business, had paid back the money. After five years, they began investing in entrepreneurial projects that would help the entire community. They would buy a bicycle that could be taken by a man in the village so he could um, give people rides around the village and he would earn some money for the day that he was given the bicycle. The entire program was set up so that these women actually were the ones that pulled themselves out of poverty and pulled the entire community out of poverty. And so God asks us very specifically, how are we going to participate in the brokenness of this world? And many of you sitting in this room are thinking about your career. You're thinking about that one day, someday, probably the seniors might be thinking about it 
a little bit more than the freshmen. But you're thinking about what's the next step? What do we do next? And I want to challenge you with two things as we're thinking today about God's brokenness. First of all, allow God to speak to you about the brokenness that's in your own life. Allow him to reveal to you like he's continuing to reveal to us the places where God needs us to work on making ourselves better. Sometimes it's as obvious as when you're have, having financial trouble, but you're standing in the middle of a refugee camp in Africa. Sometimes it will be that obvious. Other times it won't be that obvious. And other times it will take a lot of prayer and discernment for you to see how God wants you to fix other broken things in your life. And now for the part that I really wish that we could all catch a vision for, that God wants to involve all of us in the life of the world in fixing these broken things, in joining him on his journey as he begins to address brokenness in the world. And so as you're dreaming about those next steps, you're thinking about that job, you might be a business major, or you might be uh, something else, it, it doesn't matter. God wants to use the skills and the gifts that he's given you in this reconciliation ministry of fixing broken things in the world. So take all of that, all of those things, and challenge yourself not just to have a life that's full of financial reward, but a life that's full of joining God in his work in fixing brokenness around the world. Your, your generation actually pushes us all. You push the question, why are things like this in the world? You do that for us. It's one of the things that you bring, and it's a gift that you have to give. Keep asking the question, why are things the way they are? What would be an alternative, imaginative way to see the kingdom break in? We're praying and hoping for that, aren't we? And you are doing it. One of the broken pieces of the world that we didn't really talk about much was racism. And I think that you yourselves are this living example of how we respond to that. You live in it every day. You live in the tension, right? We're trying to figure out how to exist together where we hear each other, where we hear those stories. We don't get it perfect. We don't. But we are a community that faces it with eyes wide open. Let's pray together. God, your word says every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. God, that is your vision of the kingdom come, the kingdom realized, where where the rough places are made plain, the crooked made straight. God, your upside-down kingdom sometimes does not make sense to us, 
And we, we can listen to that narrative that tells us differently. God, would you wake us from our sleep? We pray that it would be so on this campus, in this community, and in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.